I would, uh, <clears throat> I'd probably be out of place if I didn't take the moment like everybody else has to say, it's so good to be here. I think that's the responsibility. If you have a mic tonight, at some point you're supposed to say, it is really good to be in the room together. Those of you online, we can't wait to see you in the room with us when, uh, when that's made possible for you as well. Um, you know, tonight we are beginning a new series that, uh, that I've been anticipating for quite a while. And um, whether you're joining us in the room or whether you're online, I think this is a very important time to be a part of what God's doing in and through our church. Um, in fact, um, if you are a part of B4 Church or if you're a part of Bridgeport Church, this week you should have received a little companion booklet to this series that looks like this. And uh, if you didn't get one of these, we actually have them in our office available for you to pick those up if you'd like one or just email us and we can uh, mail you one. Um, but what we're trying to, to do and trying to help everybody understand is who we are as a church. We're trying to clarify what it is we do as a church. Um, and I not only want to encourage you to take time and read this booklet and kind of consider what it says and think about the things that are included in it, but I also am hoping that through the course of this series that there is a deeper understanding of what God has called us to be as a church, that there is a deep understanding of who God is calling us to be as a people who are pursuing him. Um, I believe that there are things in the days ahead that God wants to do in us, and I believe there are things that God wants to do through us as a church. And I believe that this is an expression of this, that this series, that this booklet, all of these things are an expression of what I believe God has for us in the days ahead. And, and my prayer for this, and, and this is truly my prayer for this entire series, for all of you that are participating in this, my prayer is that you would find your personal story connected to this larger story that we're going to see God revealing before us. That this wouldn't be something that you passively participate in, that you sort of watch from a distance and maybe take a few notes and gather a few details that you find yourself interested in, but that you would find your story, that you would see your story connecting deeply and intimately and meaningfully with the story that we're going to be unfolding through the next several weeks. Um, over the past probably six or seven months, behind the scenes, our, our staff, we've been working to help define exactly what it is that we sense God calling us to be as a church. Uh, I think that's a really important thing to do these days, especially in the world that we live in. I think it's really important for churches to know why do we do what we do and, and what are we actually about? What are we actually trying to accomplish? What is it that God has uniquely gifted us to, positioned us for? What is God doing through us? And so for the last several months, we've been clarifying that. And uh, uh, and I think um, that there's a very broad sense that I want to share with you what God has been revealing to us. And it, it's summed up in this simple phrase. That we are called to partner with God in the renewal of all things. That's it. One little thing right there. That's a joke, by the way. You guys can laugh. I know you have masks on, but you can laugh. It's kind of a massive thing. We are called to partner with God in the renewal of all things. I know that sounds lofty. I know you hear that and you say, well, how in the world do we do this? But I just want you to, to, to hear first, let me say that that is exactly what the church is called to do. The church of Jesus is called to partner with God in the renewal of all things. That's what God is doing in the world. We exist to join God in fulfilling his mission for this world, his mission for humanity. We exist to partner with him. He sets the tone. He sets the direction. And we join him in those things. We are a part of God's movement. And what we are doing is identifying our place in that movement. Um, that vision, when I say that, that we're partnering with God in the renewal of all things, I think that's a vision that's big enough that every single one of us can live in that. 
I think it's big enough that it can inspire us. I think it's big enough that it can challenge us. But I also think it's beautiful enough that it causes us to want to find our place in that story. How do you and I partner with God? What does it look like for my life to be a contributing aspect of what God is doing in the world to renew this world around us? That's, this, that's what God is inviting us into. And my prayer is that we would be the kind of faith-filled, grace-driven community of faith that we would lean into this, that we would lean in and say, how can we become this? That our faith would be so great, that God's grace would be so compelling in our lives, that we would find ourselves just leaning in, and that the thing we wake up in the morning dreaming about and thinking about, the thing we go to our jobs thinking about, the thing we get into our school buildings thinking about, that the thing we, we wake up and eat breakfast thinking about is, how can my life participate with God and what he's doing in the world. That's my prayer for us as a church. Now, the the question that I think arises out of that is this. That's a pretty lofty thing, so how do we do this? How do you um, become a, a group of people gathered together? How do you then live this out in such a way that it's meaningful? How do you actually become a church that partners with God in the renewal of all things? How does that actually happen? And the answer is found in four words. Um, and I say that the answer is found for us in four words. Four words that all start with the letter B that um, our staff affectionately has begun uh, calling the four B's of B4. Uh, as we've been developing this and talking about this. But I want to share these, these four words that I think create an architecture um, that shapes how we accomplish this mission. How do we partner with God in the renewal of all things? Well, I truly believe it's when we focus on these four very specific things. And they are these things. Beholding, belonging, being, and going beyond. This idea of beholding, of, of, of belonging, of being, and then going beyond. Um, Over the next four weeks, we're going to be unpacking these things. Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about each one of these. And tonight, we're going to start uh, by talking about the first one, this idea of beholding. But in order for us to do this, in order for us to really understand what we're talking about, um, we're going to to unpack it in a really interesting way. Um, We're going to do this by focusing on the life of one particular individual that we read about in the Old Testament. Because through his story, through his life, through his example, we actually begin to see what God is doing in the world. And we begin to see how God uses us to participate with what he's doing. Um, Which also means this, in order for us to move forward as a church, in order for us to move into a new season, to press into new days, to see God do new things, we have to first go backwards. And we have to look at some other things that happened in the past. And specifically, we need to go to a place called Ur. And I'm going to talk about that in just a couple of moments. So if you have a Bible with you, I want you to open it up to to Genesis chapter 12. There's Bibles in the pews in front of you if you're at home. uh, You can watch or you can open up your device. Um, Genesis chapter 12, and while you're opening there, um, I'm going to just set the stage for you and give you some context for what's going on, some background for this. Um, The book of Genesis, it's the first book that we find when we open the Bible, um, and the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, they sort of tell in very broad brushstrokes a very basic storyline. And and the the first 11 chapters, they set the stage for what we're about to read in chapter 12. So let me just give you the storyline, and what you're going to hear, what you're going to see, is that the storyline actually leaves us with a question that begs to be answered. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are basically this. They, they, they start off with, with us finding out that God created the universe and everything that's in it. That's really how it begins. God created the world and everything in it. Then the next part of the story is that God created humanity in his image for relationship with him. And he entrusted the creation that he created to humanity to care for it, to steward it. Then we read that humanity... <laughs> 
in their freedom, they choose to rebel against God. They choose rebellion. And as a result, as you read these first few chapters of, of, of Genesis, we just see humanity begin to disintegrate. We see humanity begin to fall apart. We see humanity spiral. And by the time you get to just the 11th chapter of Genesis, the world has descended into chaos and confusion. Um, pe people are, are scattering. There's, there's all sorts of, of hardship that's taking place in people's lives. There is disintegration on every level of humanity. There is now disintegration for people. And the question that sort of rises out of all of this mess and madness, there's been a flood, there's been a tower of Babel, and the question that now arises out of all of this is a question that we put to God and say, God, what are you going to do about this broken humanity? You've shown us that you created this beautiful world. You've shown us that you, you put us in charge, but you've also now shown us that we've sort of messed things up. And now we're in despair. And so the question is, in this despair, God, what are you going to do? Now, Here's what's really fascinating. Genesis chapter 11 closes with a genealogy, which isn't a very exciting way to close a chapter. He, he, he ends with this list of names of people who are descended from one another. And it's really fascinating that we have this, we have this moment where human history is, is dark, it's bleak. Um, there's this cloud hanging over all of humanity. It's a hopeless place. And then we get a genealogy. And if the question is, God, what are you doing? I think you might be scratching your head even more once you see this genealogy start to unfold. We go from the Tower of Babel, where there's confusion and conflict and scattering, to a list of names. But then, right as this genealogy comes to an end, we are introduced to an individual. We are introduced, at the end of the genealogy, to a man named Abram. And it's as if God winks and says, I have something up my sleeve. In the middle of all of this chaos, in the middle of all this madness, in the middle of this darkness that seems to be looming over the land, there is a light that begins to spark. And it comes through this individual named Abram. And we begin to get a sense that God is about to do something in all of this. God is going to, to solve something in this bleak situation. In fact, there's actually a clue that's offered at the end of Genesis chapter 11. It says this, um, Genesis chapter 11, it says that Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. So there's a genealogy and then it summarizes with this that Terah took his son Abram, and they headed out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, th there's an important statement that's being made here that I just, we need to catch this before we move any further. Abram set out from Ur of the Chaldeans. So these people that we're, that we're meeting, this individual Abram and his family, they are out of Ur. They are coming out of this place called Ur. So, so this right here holds incredible symbolism and reveals why this idea of beholding is intrinsically woven into the calling of the church today. And I'm going to show you this. Ur is essentially, just so you know, sort of um, politically, geopolitically, historically, Ur is essentially Mesopotamia. And, and the, the, the people that are living in Ur during this time, they are the Sumerians. And if you took any sort of world history class growing up, uh, then you know that this, th this is... A, 
aligning with world history. Um, I've already mentioned this is a very dark period in human history. This is, the Bible's already sort of told this story that humanity's in this broken place. In, in fact, um, I truly think that these era, this era right here is a better candidate for being called the Dark Ages than what we historically call the Dark Ages. These are very, very dark days. But adding to the complexity of what we're reading in the Bible is that this man, this individual Abram, is emerging from a culture in which humanity's understanding of the universe, humanity's understanding of God in the universe, the God who created the universe, and, 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 and their understanding of, of their own lives is incredibly complex and primitive. Um, the people of Ur literally worshipped dozens of deities. Um, they were divided into different groups. There were major deities, and then there were minor deities, um, literally dozens upon dozens. If you look at the, the worship habits or the rituals of the Sumerians, you'll see that there are literally dozens and dozens, lists of names of, of individual deities that they were worshiping. Most of these deities were built around various forces of nature. There were de deities around wind and around fire, uh, around earthquakes, around rain. There were all of these different deities that sort of represented different parts of what was taking place in the natural world around them. So they have all of these deities, and there are all of these rituals and all of these ceremonies and all of these temples that were dedicated to all of these different gods. In fact, um, there is recent archaeological evidence that during the exact time period, and this is going to come up later in this series, but even this, in this exact same time period that we're reading about in Genesis chapter 11, that child sacrifice was included in the Sumerian rituals to these gods. It was as if the, the demands of these gods would get greater and greater and greater. And, and the, the lack of capacity for them to appease the angry gods brought them to a place where they would give the ultimate sacrifice, and that would be their child. So child sacrifice is a part of the Sumerian culture. It's horribly barbaric and horribly primitive. And we meet this man, and he's introduced to us, and I think this is really critical, He's introduced to us as coming out of Ur. He's coming out of Ur. These are his people. He is a Sumerian. He is coming out of this culture. And we cannot miss the significance of this. He's coming out of the place where the dominant feeling about God or the gods is that the deities are fickle and angry and that they're hard to appease. This man has lived in a culture, lived in a place where the gods are always angry, where the gods are always upset, where the gods are always demanding something from you. In fact, there was a priestly system that was set up in the Sumerian culture where there were individuals who tirelessly worked night and day ensuring that the people would be protected from the angry gods. They would make sacrifices, they would participate in rituals, all the while trying to protect the common people from these angry gods. That's how they lived their lives. I think it's worth mentioning right here that um, if you observe our culture today, not much has changed. Now, we've changed the names of the gods. We've secularized the gods. But the underlying feelings that existed in the hearts and the lives of those individuals back then are the same feelings that we experience today. 
the, the same worry, the same anxiety, the same guilt, the same shame, the same fear that drove them into their primitive religiosity is the same sort of fear and guilt and shame and worry that we carry with us today. Now, we don't make sacrifices to strange deities these days. Instead, we try to manipulate and control our circumstances through other rituals, through other habits, through other things that we do to try to pretend that those things aren't there and manipulate the world around us. But not much has really changed for us. This is Abram's reality. This is his world. So Genesis chapter 11, there's a problem. Humanity's broken. God, what are you going to do about this? Oh, there's this individual. His name is Abram. And he's coming out of this place called Ur. And you start to get this sense that God is about to do something through this man. And then you turn the page to Genesis chapter 12. And when you turn to Genesis chapter 12, it opens up. And in this context that I've just presented to you, we read this. All of this uncertainty around God. And we read Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I'll curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We're going to come back to that later in the series. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Now, we're going to focus on different aspects of this story for the next four weeks, but I want you to see something specific here today. It says in the very first verse of Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram. The Lord spoke to Abram. The Lord, which by the way, that moniker, the Lord, is, is a moniker, is a name for a God who is not included in the pantheon of gods that are in the landscape of Sumerian culture. The Lord is a distinguishing mark for a God who is other than the gods of Ur. This is a different God than the gods of the Sumerians. The Lord spoke to Abram. The Lord spoke. Do you realize how incredibly unique this moment is? How, how incredibly beautiful and wonderful this sentence is, given the setting that it's written in. A setting in which people were so confused about who God could be or what life was like in this universe. And now we have a God who speaks. A landscape littered with lesser gods, characterized by fear and anxiety. And now there is a God who makes himself known. A God who is there. A God who is, who is present, who is speaking. And what we read about in Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 is Abram encountering a living God. He's experiencing God. He's not just being told that God exists. He's encountering the living God, the one true God. For everyone else during his time, you have to understand, for them, trying to understand what God was doing was like, um, if you've ever lived in an apartment where you had upstairs neighbors, and, and you have, like, noises that take place, and you try to figure out what they're doing. You know, I think everybody plays that game everywhere around the world, right? 
You, you hear noises, and you're like, what are they doing today? Are they roller skating up there? Like, what's going on, you know? That is how the people of Ur lived their lives with God. It was, they would hear noises. There would be a bump in the night, and they would say, well, maybe God's doing this, or maybe God's doing that. And now all of a sudden, we have a God who is speaking. We have a God who's making himself known. This is a revelation. This is the God who speaks clearly and specifically. By the way, this wouldn't be the last time for Abram. I think this is really good news. A few verses later, we start to see a a pattern develop in his life. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, we read on and it says, The Lord appeared to Abram. So first he's speaking to him. Now the Lord is appearing to him. And he said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he, so he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God, he, God showed up in his circumstances. And from there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord. He called on the name of the Lord. He calls out to God. He meets this God. This God speaks to him. This God is present with him. And now he goes to this place and he finds a spot to worship, kind of like we have tonight. And he says, I'm calling on you, God. I want to know you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to worship you, God. He goes back to him. He pursues him. A few chapters later, we read this. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. It says, after this, some more incidents happen in Abram's life. And then we read that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. So now in a vision, God is speaking to him. Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. By the way, this is a a conversation that looks a lot like an argument between Abram and God. It's kind of an interesting thing to dive into sometime. Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And I love verse 6 because verse 6 says, Abram believed the Lord and it credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So again, he has this encounter with God, and God gives him hope for his future. Do you catch this? Encountering this God doesn't strike you with fear. Encountering this God gives you hope. He's, he and his wife, they're wrestling because they're childless. And he's saying, God, like, what are you doing? You've made me these promises, and this is years down the road. And he's saying, when are you going to fulfill these promises? And then there's this beautiful moment where God, and by the way, we don't know what this looks like. You know, some of us, we sometimes overly anthropomorphize these moments, and we see God maybe grabbing him by the hand. I don't know what it looked like. Sometimes I wander out of the tent at night and stare at the stars. I don't know if that's what took place for Abram. All we know is that he sensed God leading him outside. And he stares up at the sky, and he hears God say, God moves in his heart. God whispers to his spirit. See all those stars in the sky? Your offspring will number the stars. He gives him hope. He gives him hope. And Abram believed God. That's another way of saying that his fear, his worries were replaced with faith. When he heard God's promise and he saw what God was saying, he allowed faith to replace 
his fear. By the way, I think we live in a time right now when a lot of people could use some faith replacement therapy, right? We need to replace some fear in our hearts and believe God and his promises, amen? His encounter with God resulted in trust of God. That's something that happens. When you encounter God, you don't mistrust God, you trust God, right? That's a beautiful outcome of this. He, he trusts God more than his emotions. He trusts God more than his own logic. He trusts God more than his experience. He can look at his past and say, there's no way we're ever going to have children. But in that moment, he says, no, I've encountered you, God, and I trust you. Even more than the facts I'm looking at of my wife's barrenness, I still trust you. I trust you. One more. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. It says, when Abram was 99 years old. I like this one, um, and here's why, because it reveals this was a lifelong pattern for Abram. God wasn't one and done in his life, and God is not one and done in your life. God doesn't just speak one time and then sort of disappear, and you go, where was that? Where would you go? It's an ongoing reality. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for you have I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I've made you a father of many nations. And I am making an everlasting covenant with you. There's so much beauty taking place here as God just takes Abram's expectations of his future. Even his expectations of his impact. And God expands his vision dramatically for who he is. So, so here's, here's what I want, want you to see and understand. Abraham, who we now get to call Abraham because of those verses. Abraham's story is the first real story that shows us what a life looks like when it is lived in real relationship with a real God. That's what Abraham's showing us. Here we have a man who genuinely beholds God. He sees God, and he spends the rest of his life immersed in God's presence, immersed in the reality that God is near to him. And that radically changes the trajectory of his life. Do you see this? But beholding God doesn't just change his life. It changes every life. Every life. The, the Bible, you know, you read the Bible, the Bible is filled with stories of people who encounter or behold. Abram's the first, but, but then we see over and over again, there are people who see God, they encounter God, they behold God in all of his goodness and all of his glory, and their lives are never the same again. Because you cannot come face to face with God and not have your life radically upended. Are you with me on this? You don't hear from the one true God and then go, yeah, I think I'm just going to go back to work tomorrow. <laughs> like everything's just going to be like it was yesterday. You, that doesn't happen to you, right? You can't come face to face with God and not have your life rearranged. It's impossible. And by the way, there's also no evidence anywhere that God desires for individuals to have some sort of euphoric emotional experience in his presence and then just kind of go back to everyday life. 
Like we just come and feel good for a little while and then we go back. Like that is not something that's ever described. In fact, at one point in, in the ministry of Jesus, um, Peter at the transfiguration, he suggests something along those lines. And Jesus essentially looks at Peter and says, you really don't get it, do you? Like you really don't understand what this is all about. There are outcomes of beholding God. And beholding God is what we are invited into just like Abraham. What we just read is exactly what God, God is telling us this story because we live in Ur. And there's an opportunity to move out of that place and to experience the God who is near. You know, later, um, Abram would get a, a nickname. Um, nicknames tell you something about a person, uh, and I probably shouldn't tell you mine, but I'm going to do this right now. And I just, with this one disclaimer, if you ever call me one of these nicknames, I'm going to kick you out of the church, all right? <clears throat> I don't know if I can do that, but I'll try. Um, but, but my parents, when I was little, my first nickname was Pooh Bear, and it was not after Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, it was for far more practical reasons. And so for years, I lived with that. And then we moved into a neighborhood, and there was a neighbor of ours. I don't think he knew my name. He, I had a shirt that had 32 on it, and so he started calling me 32. And so for a very long period of time, I was just simply a number. I was 32 to people. Hey, 32. And I didn't know what that meant, but I, just, I was 32, and I responded to it. Um, and then uh, in junior high, I have a bit of a temper when playing sports. I used to have a bit of a temper when playing sports, let me clarify. And so my friends gave me the nickname Mad Dog. And they would be picking teams, and they would say, Mad Dog, you're on my team. And I was like, okay, I got a reputation. And then in junior high, my small group leader, he started calling me Elway. And uh, for a while, I thought it was because of my arm. And then I realized um, it was maybe because of my teeth. And so that, that wasn't much of a compliment. But we have nicknames, right? You earn these nicknames. Abram got a nickname. And later in the Bible, he is referred to as the friend of God. Abraham, friend of God. So I think there's this idea that, that says, well, if I behold God, well, then um, I'm going to be afraid of God. Behold is this really holy-sounding word. And it is a holy word. And it's, we choose this word intentionally. But when you behold God, you also become friends with God. You become a friend of God. Why? Well, because you discover a God who's not like other gods. When Abram encounters this God who, who speaks and makes himself clear, who is for him and not against him, a God who is loving him and extending grace to him, when he meets this, he, he knows in this moment, I can be friends with this God. All the other gods I'm afraid of, but this God... Those other lesser gods that people are worshiping, those gods, I don't know what's going on with those gods, but this God, I know this God, and this God is for me and not against me. And so they were friends, the Bible tells us. And friends live in relationship with one another, don't they? Which means they talk and they listen and they support and they encourage. By the way, being God's friend doesn't mean that Abraham got preferential treatment. I want you to notice this. Um, he had valleys. He had hard times, just like anybody else would have. But being the friend of God meant that he navigated those valleys. He navigated those hard times differently than everybody else. He was the friend of God. It also didn't mean his life was comfortable. Uh, I've come to realize that, that true friends, they don't let you stay in a comfortable, stagnant place. True friends speak truth to you. Amen? 
Real friends will call you out and they'll call you up, right? Real friends will encourage things in you. They will see things in you that you don't see in yourself and they'll call those things out and they will draw you into those things. That's what real friends do and that's the relationship that God had with Abraham. This is all true of the God that we are meeting through the story of Abraham. Now, let me just tell you a couple more things, and then, um, and then I'll wrap things up. A um, couple more things about Abraham, and this is really important for you and I to hear, because I know some of you, you're thinking, like, well, that's, you're talking about Abraham, and he's in the Bible, and, you know, there's all this covenant stuff, and he's a really good guy. Let me just tell you this. Abraham was not overly heroic. <laughs> so if you think, i got to be a hero to be a friend of God, you need to look at Abraham, because he was no hero. Abraham didn't have above-average character. In fact, there are moments that we read about where he had significant character flaws. There were times when he deceived people. He made bad choices. Has anybody ever made a bad choice in the room other than me? Amen? Amen? It's kind of nice to read in the Bible people that made bad choices, and yet they were still friends with God. Um, there were times when, there was a moment when he laughingly doubts God. Come on, God, seriously? On top of all that, he never really did anything that would make him uh, celebrity status in our culture. Abraham's life never would have trended on Twitter today, okay? The, the, like the biggest thing he ever did with his life, when you really look at it, the biggest thing, he moved. So did you probably, right? I mean, I've done it like 15 times. I've moved houses. So my guess is that Abraham probably looked at his life and went, I don't know what significance, I mean, I kind of moved my family here, but that's all I ever really did. He just lived life. But what Abraham was known for was the way he beheld God and believed God. Notice I didn't say he believed in God. He believed, he, he didn't need to believe in God because he had, beheld God. He had experienced God. You don't need to believe in God when you have encountered God. Are you with me on this? If you've come face to face with God, there's no point where your faith is about you believing whether or not he's there or not. Once you encounter God, now your faith is about trusting him with the things that he tells you. So Abraham beheld God and he believed God. He believed him. He trusted him. He took God at his word. And that's what happens when you behold God. If, if you're taking notes, I want you to catch this. This is something I think is really critical. Beholding God results in believing God. And believing God results in being who God created you to be. Let me say that again. When you see and you hear God, and then you believe what he says. When you believe it, you trust it, you lean into it. When you believe what he says, you will be who he created you to be. That's the promise of this. So what does all this mean? What does it mean for us? Let me make this really simple. It means that in order for you and I to be the people that God created us to be, we have to open our eyes to see Jesus. We have to open our ears to hear his voice. We have to create rhythms and patterns and find the places where we can encounter this God who is there. To all those Sumerians who were trying to conjure up the goodwill of the gods, we look at them and shake our heads and say, we're not trying to find a God who's distant. We're just opening our eyes and opening our ears to the God who is already there the God who is present with us.
It's about God's presence. That's what it's about. This whole thing, the Christian life, everything, the church, all of it, Jesus giving us his Holy Spirit, all of it, the whole point is that it's about the presence of God. So I want to make something really clear because we are talking about our church and we're talking about um, what we do. And let me just say, first of all, we do not carry out rituals (laughs) to to, to make the, the angry gods happy. That's not what we do. We don't try to keep the angry God at bay. That's not what we're about. And we don't exist to deliver content that's just meaningful for the moment that you're in in your life. We aren't just a content delivery system that says, here's some meaningful information that hits you at a timely point in your life. That is not what we do. Our priority as a community of faith is to point you towards God's presence so that you can behold him and that by beholding him, you might also believe him. That's why we exist. I love this moment in John chapter 1 when John the Baptist is baptizing individuals who are waking up to this new reality of God. And Jesus comes walking along the banks of the Jordan River and he looks at his disciples. He looks at those that are following him, the, the, the disciples of John the Baptist. And he points to Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By the way, that's another way of saying, behold the God who enters the dark and flips on the lights. And it says that John's disciples, John's followers, they left John and they followed Jesus. Which is what I pray and hope for, for every single person in this room and every single person who's watching this message, that we would behold the living God and that we would follow him and pursue his presence. I'm going to invite the band... um, I'm going to invite the band back out, and they're going to close us in worship. And as they come, there's something I just want, I want to close with saying, and, um, and it's this. Uh, I, I, I don't want people to ever say about B4 Church or Bridgeport Church, wow, that teaching is really solid. I, I don't want that to be the thing that people say. Um, I don't want people to say, man, the music was just right. And it just was like so perfect and the songs were like everything was delivered. Like that is not what I want people to say about our church. I don't want people to say like when we have coffee again, uh, you know, the coffee's just delicious. It's perfect every week. I don't want people to say, yeah, the branding is really sharp. It's really on point. That's not what I want people to say. And those are all good things. Those aren't bad things, but I'm just telling you those things are not the goal. What I want people to hear to say what I want to hear on the lips of human beings that live anywhere within our reach. I want to hear them say, I've learned how to behold the living God because of this church. I've learned how to enter into God's presence because of this church. I've learned how to listen for his voice. I've I've learned how to look for his leading. That's what I want people to say about our church. Amen? Would you stand with me? Right now the team's going to close us in a song, and I'm going to come back up in a moment and offer the benediction. But um, this song that we're going to sing, I I don't know what it is about this song right now, and sometimes God uses certain songs in certain ways. But this song over the last couple of months for me and a lot of people on our team has been a song that has been driving us towards the presence of God, just wanting to behold him. And so 
I'm going to pray for you right now. I'm going to pray that, that you, you would just have a, a posture in your heart that would be willing and open to experiencing God in new ways. And so would you just pray with me now, and then, then we're going to worship together. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for, for opening our eyes and opening our ears and allowing us to know that we are loved, to know that you are for us. And you promised your spirit and you said that we would be covered in, filled with, surrounded by, and encouraged by your spirit. And Lord, as we sing this song, as we enter into a time of just focused attention on encountering you, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would move in us. And I pray that we might be able to leave this place tonight and say, I encountered the living God in my life as a pattern, just like Abraham, of encountering you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Just gone through the motions. I'm sorry when I just sang another song. Take me back to every star. I open up my heart. I'm sorry when I've come. My agenda, I'm sorry when I forgot the joy now. Take me back to where we start. I open up my heart. Oh Lord, I'm caught up in your presence. wanna sit here at your feet I'm caught up in this holy moment I never wanna leave alone oh, I'm not here for blessing Jesus you don't know you 
just want you. I just want you. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else will do. I just want you. Nothing else, Lord. Nothing else, Jesus. Nothing else will do. I just want you. Nothing else, Lord. Nothing else, Jesus. Nothing else will do. I just want you. Nothing else. Close your eyes, um, not for any other reason than just to sort of eliminate any distraction in this moment. And I want you to lean in right now to what we've talked about tonight. I want you to lean in and I want you to open your ears. And I know this may not have happened for everybody in the room tonight, but my guess is that tonight as as you're sitting here and even right now, there is something that God is speaking to you. He's nudging you. And it may not sound like an audible voice. It may not be that he's grabbed you by the hand and he's taking you out into the parking lot to stare at the stars. But there's something that God's speaking to you tonight. We believe God. We've experienced him. We've encountered him. And it's a pattern. And I I believe for for many of us, we're burning fumes from old experiences, old words, things God said years ago. And he's speaking now in this moment, but he's saying things that maybe 
uncomfortable. He may be pushing us outside of our comfort zone. He may be calling us to leave the borders of our comfortable nation. He may be calling us to do something that we've never thought of doing before. He might be calling us to change something, and, and so there's some discomfort. But in this moment, would you just pause and, and would you acknowledge, would you just say, Lord, I hear you. Whatever it is, and again, it may not be everybody in the room, but I know certainly for some of you, God is nudging you and he's speaking to you. He's promising something. He's encouraging you. He's giving you hope. Would you do me a favor right now for everybody? Would you let faith drive out fear right now? This is a God that we can believe and trust. Would you let your faith drive out any fear that's in your heart? Jesus, in this place, right now, I ask that we would not only hear your words, but that we would believe your words. That the things you've spoken over us, the promises of your goodness and your grace, your love, the reality that you're for us, Lord, I pray that those overriding words would be driven into our hearts and they would push out any fear, any uncertainty, any anxiety. Lord, that whatever circumstances are taking place around us, in our city, in our nation, in our world, Lord, that we would be people of peace. We would be people of calm in the middle of the storm because we know the one who calms the storm. Lord Jesus, let the fear be driven out by our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to offer the benediction in just a moment. Um, but before I do that, I want to let you guys know that um, over the past several months, we've been assembling a, a team of people, a group of people that are elders for our church. And uh, from now on in our services, they're going to be hanging around, available. They have lanyards on that are a different color. And uh, they're around. To, if you want to pray with them, there's not going to be down front or anything like that. You can just hang around in your section. Um, you can walk up to one of them and talk to them. But they're available for you to pray. If there's something that God's stirring in you, if there's something you want somebody to lay hands on you and pray for you, that's what they're here for. And so I want to encourage you just to, to know that they're there and to, to seek them out if you want to pray with somebody. Also tonight when you leave, it's going to be a little bit like kindergarten tonight because um, we're doing the color thing as we leave tonight. Um, so there's a color that coordinates with your section and strangely enough for some of you, the door you came in isn't marked with the same color that, um, that you're going to go out of. You have a different door, some of you. And so just pay attention as you leave tonight that you head out the door that's marked with your color. And uh, if you're colorblind, please ask for help from somebody around you. So didn't think about that one. And then finally, if you'd like to give, there are offering towers out by the exits, and you can drop an offering in there, a gift in there if you'd like to. Uh, I threatened that I wasn't going to let anybody out until you dropped something in there, but the staff said that was a bad idea. So, And I agreed with them. I think that is a bad idea. But... Uh, just so appreciate you guys all being here tonight. And now, um, as you go, may you be men and women who stand in the middle of a dark time, a chaotic place, with the faith of Abraham. May you be men and women who see and who hear and who believe this God who is near, this God who is for you. And may you be everything that God created you to be. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks, everybody, for being here tonight. Thank you so much. We love you guys. Drive safe. And we will see you really soon. See you guys later.